Well, good evening, church. We are in the fifth message in the Faith Under Fire series. We took a break from it uh, at the beginning of this pandemic, but I want to jump back in it because I think there's a lot of hope here about how gracious God has been to us through Jesus Christ. And and I want to speak to you for a few minutes on authenticity in a world of fake news. We have good news. And we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and really go all the way through about the first five or six verses of chapter 3. <clears throat> now, the last time we, we looked at 1 Peter, we talked about the importance of the Word of God and, and its authenticity and its authority and how we need to desire it. And that's where we look in times of trouble. We look to the Word of God. We look to the Psalms. We look to uh, John 14. We looked at Psalm 23. There are a lot of passages that we tend to automatically go to when we need hope. But I, I want to take you to one you might not <clears throat> normally go to. And I want to look at the authentic approach. The authentic approach. 1 Peter chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone, a living stone, which means that Jesus is the centerpiece of life in the church, Coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Here we go again. God accepts Jesus. Men have rejected him. Now, Peter says, and coming to him, or when you come to him, is another way you can say that. If you just back up a, a page in the First, First Peter chapter 1 and verse 17, says, if you address him as Father. So the assumption is we're coming to him as our Heavenly Father because of Jesus Christ, the living stone. Now this word come always seems to be tied to sacrifice. And, and it's most often used of a priest bringing something before God. It's plural. So Peter is not saying when you individually... He's speaking to the Christian body of believers. And he's saying, when you come, when we all come before God, before Jesus, who is our living stone. And so what's, what's he saying here? He's telling us that worship is more than singing and preaching and taking the Lord's Supper. It is also how we serve and how we live in this community. Worship is how we serve and how we live. We, we can't gather right now, but we can still worship by how we live and by how we serve. Peter is picking up on this Old Testament picture, and he's making a New Testament application to it. So you've got Old Covenant, you've got New Covenant. As a living stone, we are called to be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. So the thing that I would <clears throat> say here is we need to be careful when we are approaching Jesus, especially in our Western Christian culture where we tend to be a little flippant and refer to him as the big man upstairs or, or hey God or yo God or whatever you want to do. Uh, we shouldn't be less reverent than the priests were in the Old Testament. 
We should be as we should be as precise and reverent. And I'm not talking about being legalistic. I'm talking about how we approach the Father. Here's what we know from the Old Testament view of the priest. The priest knew what to offer. The priest knew when to offer it. The priest knew where the sacrifice was supposed to be made. And he knew who the sacrifice was for. So we shouldn't be any less precise in our awe and in our reverence and in our worship. He's referring to Jesus as a living stone. Now, let me give you three characteristics of this living stone of Jesus. Number one, he was rejected by men. That's the cross. Number two, he was chosen by God. That's the resurrection. And number three, he was precious to God. That's his ascension. So he was rejected, he was chosen, and he was precious. Guess what? Right by that, as living stones, which we're about to look at, we are rejected as believers by this world. But God has chosen us in Christ Jesus for salvation, and we are precious to him because he loved us enough to die for us. There's a pastor that pastored for a number of years in, in Texas, and Paul Powell, and he wrote this. I love this. His quote is in the notes that are on the website. Every time someone trusts Christ, another stone is quarried out of the pit of sin and cemented by God's grace into the walls of the church, and thus they become a living part of the living house of the living God. Now that's good. We are quarried out of the pit of sin and cemented by God's grace into the walls of the church. In scripture, the stone is one of the titles for Messiah. Now if you take note in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, he talks about a living hope. In chapter 1 and verse 23, he talks about a living word. Now he's talking about a living stone. Look at verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's a lot of words. What's he saying? He's piling on a lot of words. What Peter is saying is that God is building a temple out of living stones, and we are built on Jesus Christ. He's building a temple. He's building a church out of living stones, and we are built on Jesus. Here's why that word living is important. Because faith is not academic. Faith is not intellectual, academic. It's bigger than that. Yes, we put our faith in the facts that we know in God's Word, but faith is not an academic study. Secondly, faith is not static. It grows. It builds. The church is an organism, not an organization. Thirdly, faith is not an isolated incident. In other words, faith is not 
Yeah, I prayed one day when I was 7, 17, or 37. I, I prayed to receive Christ, but I hadn't done anything since then. No, faith, being a living stone, means that your faith is active and it's not isolated. We are involved with other people who are part of a bigger picture called the church. Now, one of the things I, I love about what Peter does and, and what the New Testament does is some of the names that are used for Jesus, singular, are used for us, plural. For instance, he's the son of God, we are sons of God. He's the high priest, we are priests. He's the lamb, we are lambs. He's the living stone, we are stones in the building of God. So he's piling up these words. <clears throat> he tells us that stones are priests. There's the priesthood of the believer. Remember in the Old Testament, the priests could enter the temple at a certain time, and the high priest could only go in once a year on the Day of Atonement and offer a sacrifice for sin. In fact, had a rope tied around him, because if he had sinned, God would strike him dead, and they had to pull him out. Peter tells us, and the scriptures tell us, that we are now priests before God, the priests of the believer, and we are the temple, the dwelling place of God, and that we can enter his presence anytime. It is a living, vibrant relationship. And so the question is, are we willing to be shaped by God and used as living stones for his purposes? Because these living stones, he says, we're being built up to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Well, what sacrifices? We're, we're not bringing doves. We're not bringing goats. We're not bringing lambs. What sacrifices are we to bring as priests under the New Testament understanding of that, as the priests of the believer, all of us priests before God? Well, here are the sacrifices. First of all, obedience. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. One of the sacrifices we bring to God is obeying him. We love him and we obey him. It brings joy to our hearts as parents when our kids obey us. It brings joy to the heart of God when his children obey him. Secondly, praise and thanksgiving. Praise and thanksgiving, that's Hebrews 13, 15. We bring a sacrifice of praise. That's an old praise course, but it's still good because it's based on scripture. We bring a sacrifice of praise. We bring our thanksgiving to God for who he is and for what he's done. A third one is ministry to others. That's Hebrews 13, 16. Our sacrifice is when we minister to others, when we serve others. Jesus said, if you want to be great, be a servant. Be a servant. Ephesians 5, 2 tells us it's a life of love a life of love, that we give of ourselves, not only in love for God, but love for our neighbor. And then Philippians 4.18 says it's a life of giving. Christians should be the most giving people in the world because God gave his best, we should give our best. Now the second point is the authentic people. In a world of fake news and people that are fakes and wear facades and masks, we need to be the real deal. We need to be the authentic people of God. So pick up with me in verse 6. 
For this is contained in Scripture. Now he's quoting here, two times he quotes Isaiah, and once he quotes Psalms. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now just stop right there in verse 6. That choice stone, that precious cornerstone, is choice and precious because of the resurrection. Men reject God accepted. He is the cornerstone, the foundation stone on which all is built is in Christ. Verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected. This has become the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. You see, Peter is saying they refuse to obey and they refuse to follow, but God has called and chosen us to be his witnesses by our works and by our words. We are to be his witnesses. So there again, <clears throat> he's quoting Isaiah 28, 16, Psalm 118 and verse 22, and Isaiah 8 and verse 14. Now, when he says we can stumble, that means you can trip or fall or even take offense or to reject someone. So the question has to come in my life, if I'm living as an authentic believer, I'm living the life of Christ in this world. Am I seeing Jesus as a cornerstone or a stumbling block? And am I pointing people to Jesus as the cornerstone, or am I a stumbling block to people seeing Jesus as the cornerstone? You see, I can be a stumbling block too by my life. How many people have you witnessed to or have I've shared Christ with, and they say, I'm not going to be a Christian. I saw that guy. He says he's a Christian. That's what a Christian is. I want nothing to do with this. That's a fake. That's not Jesus, no matter what they say. That's not the way Jesus acts. But Jesus is a cornerstone, a foundation stone, a capstone that we are to line up our lives with him so that we can show Jesus through our lives. Now, he talks about these people that reject. Look back at it and what he says again. He says, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. Now, I've watched people get bogged down in these couple of verses and start having heated arguments about predestination. Does God know who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved? I would say the answer to that is yes. Does God choose and say, well, you can be saved, but you can't be saved? I'm going to let you believe in Jesus, but I refuse to let you believe in Jesus. That's a mud pit and you just when you sling mud you lose ground and I don't want to get bogged down here in some argument in some theological game with a sacred truth about God's choosing us and making us a part of his family of faith here's what God knew God knew that people would reject Jesus God knew that when his son came to earth they would crucify him. Nothing catches God off guard. 
Nothing surprises God. He knows from beginning to end. He was not surprised. Their doom is the consequence of their choice. Let me say that again. The doom of those without Christ is the consequence of their choice. Because the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him. He didn't say except for you and except for you. There are no exception clauses in John 3.16. The gospel is for the Jew and the Gentile, which means it's for everybody. Everybody that's not a Jew is a Gentile. So the gospel, Jesus died for all. Not all will embrace him. One preacher said, "I, I love this. Is it not possible in the mystery of God's activity that there is both the necessity of our choosing and the wonder of God's choosing? You see, I don't know who's going to be saved. So my job is to pray and to preach and to teach and to share and to witness to anybody that I can, anywhere I can, at every opportunity, because I don't know who's going to respond to the gospel. Only God knows that. But my job is to share the gospel. Or else, if if it's all predetermined, then Jesus is mocking us in giving us a great commission. Then we are wasting our times in evangelism and missions. If they're going to get saved anyway, or they're not going to get saved anyway, we are really wasting our time. There's the two poles. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And there is a tension between those two that we cannot settle in our finite minds. So I want to encourage you, don't fall into the trap. And I know Christians that do this. I avoid them like the plague. I I practice social distancing from these people. Don't fall into the trap of thinking you understand all this better than God himself. God told us what we needed to know. And what we need to know is that people are lost. Without Christ, they're going to spend eternity in hell. We've been commanded to go, and it's God who does the saving from beginning to end. But our decision about Jesus determines whether we end up in heaven or hell. And if you can't agree on that, I'm sorry. That's as simple as I can make it. But that means that a five-year-old can understand it and an 85-year-old can understand it. And you don't have to go to seminary to figure it out. Jesus didn't die to build seminaries and intellectual institutions. He died to tell hurting people that he had hope for them through his death and through his resurrection. Let's not make discussion of these things a stumbling block for people. Then there's an authentic evaluation. Verse 5 There's a holy priesthood. Verse 9, there's a royal priesthood. Now, especially among the Jews at this time, the the priesthood meant privilege. And in some ways it means privilege for us, but the priesthood for us means responsibility. As the family of faith, we are responsible to live a life of integrity. What did a priest do in the Old Testament? They lived holy lives. They brought Offerings, they made sacrifices, and they interceded for other. Every task of a priest in the Old Testament was to bring glory to God. Is that not what our task is? To glorify God with our lives? A priest had access to others. And a priest would stand in the gap 
for others. <clears throat> now, as I was studying this, I discovered that the Latin word for priest means bridge builder. Bridge builder, one who builds bridges for others to get to God. Now, we don't have to go through a priest to get to God. We don't have to go through a priest to get our sins forgiven. But here's how I want you to see that. Every time you share your faith and every time you pray for somebody, you're building a bridge that hopefully one day they will walk across and get to God. There's an old track that has two hills and a great valley in between them and there's no way to get across this gap except through the cross we're building a bridge we're pointing people to the cross the priest brings an offering in the old testament it was an animal sacrifice in the new testament we are living sacrifices pick up in verse 9 but you were a chosen race a royal priesthood now he's really piling on words a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies, here's witnessing, of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, Israel has failed. The church can't fail in this. Israel missed her assignment. She failed in her assignment. We are now the people of God in a new covenant with the church. And we were chosen by God to be his representatives of his kingdom and to bring people to faith in Christ. What you were and what you are. He says you, you weren't his. Now you are his. You weren't saved. Now you are saved. You weren't a recipient of mercy. Now you have received mercy. You see, your worship of God proclaims his worth, and your witness of God proclaims his worth. We're called out, out of this nothingness into significance. Now, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 7, he's dealing with a practical application of daily living. As a chosen people, as a holy nation, as a people of God's own possession, we are his ambassadors. We are aliens and strangers, meaning this world is not our home. The old gospel song says we're just passing through. We're aliens and strangers, but we are ambassadors for the king of kings. But we march to a different drummer. So Peter is writing, this persecution is beginning on the church, Believers were being slandered. He's writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and they were being slandered and questioned. And so Peter comes up with this list under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of how we are to live under persecution and when we are aliens and strangers in this world. He's not talking about being weird. He's talking about our lives. So, I'm, I'm not going to take time to get into, you know, uh, authorities and slaves and masters and, and husbands and wives and all that. As I was looking at that, I could take a whole another message or three messages and deal with each one of those individually. But 
you'd get tired of it and you'd go turn on some Andy Griffith rerun. So uh, to, to save you the time, I want to give you some summary principles on that work, whatever area you're talking about, government, your job, your family, your marriage. <clears throat> These are overarching principles. First of all, don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. Pride doesn't wear well on a believer. Don't be arrogant. Don't be pushy. Be humble. Honor those who are in authority. Serve those who are in authority. Pray for those who are in authority. Secondly, freedom always involves responsibility. Peter tells us to be good citizens. Now, he's talking to people that live in a dictatorship, <clears throat> in a pagan culture where godlessness ruled and reigned, and there were hundreds of gods. He says, be a good citizen. Mind your business. Be a good citizen. Pray for the leaders. That's what Paul said in Timothy. Thirdly, live up to the name Christian. Whether you're talking about how you deal with the government or your job, or he's talking about master-slave here, and most of the slaves at that time were domestic, but he's telling us you're aliens and strangers but he's reminding us of what Jesus said. Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Whether that is that world system of slavery, which, thank God, we don't have in America anymore, but still exists in countries around this world, or it's the boss-employee relationship, live up to the name Christian. If you're going to be a Christian, act like a Christian. When they went to Antioch, they were first called Christians in the book of Acts in Antioch. They were not called that. They didn't call themselves. They didn't sit around in a, in a committee meeting. So I think we ought to call ourselves Christians, little Christ. They were called that by the world observing their behavior. They were called Christians by the people of Antioch. So let's live up to the name Christian like Jesus. Number four, <clears throat> have God's perspective that he will make all things new one day. Now, let me just refer to this briefly. The New Testament was written in a time of slavery. It was written in a time when women were not treated as equal, when they were treated as objects and possessions. In fact, in in the Jewish world, a man could throw his wife out of the house for burning his bread. It was insane, the disrespect for women. When Jesus showed up, he immediately treated women as equals. Now, we're still trying to figure out what Jesus figured out 2,000 years ago. And Jesus said, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends, sons, members of the family. So when you look at the treatment of people, whatever realm you want to look at it, in a family or in the, in the world, God doesn't work on our timetable, but God does set in motion things that ultimately change the culture. 
We've seen it throughout 2,000 years of Christian history. When God moves in in revival, it changes the culture. It changed child labor laws. It changed and created churches, created hospitals, Wilberforce uh, resisting slavery in England uh, and slavery in America. We have seen the changes in culture. Uh, women being treated equally should be paid equally. I agree with that. And you know, don't, don't argue about it. If a person's doing a job, they ought to be paid for the job they're doing. We're not there everywhere yet. But Jesus sets in motion a level playing ground. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's level. There's no haves and have-nots. There's no, I'm better than you. I deserve more than you. Everybody comes to the cross the same way, on their knees, on their face. Lastly, a godly marriage is one of the greatest witnesses we have. Now, I've been in ministry long enough that there are men that love when you get on these four or five verses about women, about how they're supposed to dress and what they're supposed to wear and how they're supposed to act, how they're supposed to do this. And, and they really like to beat the drum on it. Yeah, I want to tell you something, Brother Cat. I want to tell you, God had to write four or five verses about those women. Only did one for men. Oh, wait a minute before you go there. Jesus said, how you treat your wife determines whether your prayers get answered. That's a pretty big deal, guys. How you treat your wife determines whether your prayers get answered. You're focusing on the outward adornment. God is focused on the heart for the wife and the man, mainly because mostly the wives, the women, were the first ones to come to Christ in the first century, and they would have an unbelieving husband. And so they were under his authority. They didn't want to get kicked out in the street. And so Peter's saying, this is what you need to do. But he's saying to the men who are believers, this is the way you need to think if you don't want your prayers hindered. If you want God to lock the door of heaven, then just be abusive to your wife. He'll lock the door of heaven. Why is this important? Because the enemy and this world system is always looking for inconsistencies in Christians and in Christian families so that they can say, see, it's not real, it doesn't work, it isn't sufficient. And the only way we disprove that is by living godly lives. You see, the world determines its view of God from the people of God. The world determines its view of God from the people of God. I know the Bible is the best-selling book in the world still, but it's also the least-read book in the world. People own Bibles, but they never open them. You see, people read us more than they read the Bible, and they think about the Bible by how they look at us. They see us... They only hear about Jesus. And so we are to be living representatives of Christ. So, closing thought. We need to be the church. Everything that that means in the best that it means. So that when we leave the church, the world can see the greatness of God. This world at its worst needs the church at its best. We need to be living stones, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We need to be godly. We need to live up to the call that is on our lives. We, we need to show the love of God to a lost world. 
so that when they see the church, when it's not meeting on Sunday mornings, but when it's out in the community, at work, at school, in the neighborhood, they see the greatness of God. And, and, let me just add something here. <clears throat> you know one of the ways you show the greatness of God? And this is, for me as a prophet, this is hard for me. Just lighten up and laugh a little bit. Laugh. Enjoy life. God gave you breath. God gave you life. Enjoy the moments. Don't miss the moments that you have. We, we've been doing uh, FaceTime with uh, our youngest daughter's foster child. And a couple of times a day, let's... Let's, let's call Kit Kat and Cat Daddy. Let's call Kit Kat and Cat Daddy. And she wants to show us something. She wants to tell us something. You, you know what? We need to look like Jesus, even on FaceTime with her. We need to act. There needs to be joy in our lives. Just think about all the people in this world that are in tough situations that are in horrendous situations, that are in abusive situations. We need, when the pressure is on us like it is right now, we need to show to this world the greatness of our God. So when you go through the drive through and pick up Chick-fil-A, show the greatness of God. Be kind, be friendly, smile at them, leave them a tip. When you go through another drive-thru, be kind, be friendly, leave them a tip. Show them the greatness of our God because I tell you, the five cars before you, they were all complaining and griping. Show the greatness of God by being a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you've given us the power of the Holy Spirit to do that which we cannot do in our flesh. And I pray that when this world sees us, it will see Jesus in us. For I pray it in his name and by his power. Amen.